This is Exposing Washington with Walker Wildman, bringing clarity to Washington, D.C. news. We see corruption at every level in Washington, and it's in both parties. Exposing the deception plaguing our nation's capital. Not only what he told every Republican senator, but what he told the press over and over and over again was a simple lie. And helping Christians stay informed about government. Now, of course, this puts a bigger burden on voters to go figure out what's actually going on. Be sure to visit AFR.net or wherever you get your podcast to hear past episodes. This is Exposing Washington with Walker Wildman on American Family Radio. Welcome to Exposing Washington on the American Family Radio Network. Glad to have you with us today on the show. American Family Radio is the network, as I mentioned, and the name of the, sh- of the show is Exposing Washington. Uh, my name is Walker Wildman. I'm the host. Glad to be with you. Got several different uh, topics that we're going to discuss today on the show. And just to remind you, the primary focus of the show is news coming out of our nation's capital, news coming out of Washington, D.C. And and I'm going to bring you the uh, Christian perspective or the conservative perspective as, as to what's going on in our nation's capital and bring that news to you from that perspective and uh, also add in my commentary throughout. If you want to visit our website, check it out, AFR.net. It's a great uh, place for all things American Family Radio So you can go to AFR.net, get all of our shows there, catch a podcast, which is last, uh, our past shows you can find on there, uh, on our website, AFR.net. Go there, listen to podcasts, and you can also listen live there at our website, AFR.net. You can also download our app, just type in American Family Radio on your app store and download the app for free. Today I want to talk about America's Middle East strategy. I touched on this a little bit last week, but I didn't really give it enough time. Um, And so I want to break down more about what exactly is America's Middle East strategy. And as I've said before, the there hasn't really been a clear, articulate strategy in the Middle East that is convincing to me. You know, different people will talk about, well, we we need to, you know, repel countries like Iran. We need to uh, keep groups like ISIS. We need to keep them at bay. And there's these various, you know, we need to protect the oil, um, the oil lanes or the, the international shipping lanes, which are largely used for oil, especially in the Middle East. So you've got all these different things that people will talk about when they're, when they're trying to convince you as to what, we, what we're doing in the Middle East. And one really one strategy that I would say doesn't get enough attention or really should be focused on more, should be really the primary goal in the Middle East, is to protect Israel. I would argue that should be the the overarching goal in the Middle East when it comes to U.S. involvement. 
And I think this whole idea that we're going to build a democracy in Iraq, a stable democracy in Iraq that can function on its own, the idea that we're going to do that, you know, I think that idea is long gone. I think it, time has, has shown that that's just not going to happen. And so, you know, we'll, we'll delve more into that here in a few minutes. But before we jump there, I want to talk about this idea of presidential authority. And what does the president have the authority to do when it comes to military operations? The president is obviously the commander-in-chief, head of the military, according to the Constitution. But you don't have to just trust my word for it. Let's listen to clip three. This is President Obama's attorney general just not that long ago. I think it was back in 2011, 2012, where Eric Holder tells us exactly what kind of power the president has when it comes to the military. Clip three, let's listen. Given these facts, the Constitution does not require the president to delay action until some theoretical end stage of planning when the precise time, place, and manner of an attack become clear. Such a requirement would create an unacceptably high risk that our efforts would fail and that Americans would be killed. Well, there you have it. Eric Coulter, President Obama's attorney general, saying that The president doesn't have to wait until our forces are attacked or until we have the precise details about an imminent attack to strike a terrorist. Basically, the president can preemptively strike a terrorist overseas at his discretion. And then we have multiple other administration or former Obama officials who have said the exact same thing. We had Jay Johnson, the former uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary under Obama, go on on one of the major networks and say the exact same thing last week. The president had ample authority to, to kill the Iranian terrorist leader, Soleimani. And so from a legal perspective, President Trump had the full authority to strike this terrorist. Not to mention that Soleimani, the terrorist leader from Iran that we killed, he was in Iraq. He was in an active war zone when he was killed. Which further bolsters the legal argument that President Trump had the full authority to take out this terrorist leader. Other lawmakers, other Democrats, they were just mad because President Trump didn't brief them before he killed Soleimani. And I'm going to let President Trump here in clip two, he's going to explain why on earth he did not tell the Democrats prior to killing Soleimani. Clip two, let's listen. And we have Bernie and Nancy Pelosi, we have them all, they're all trying to say, how dare you take him out that way? You should get permission from Congress. You should come in and tell us what you want to do. You should come in and tell us so that we can call up 
the fake news that's back there and we can leak it. Well, there you have it. President Trump there at a rally this past Thursday night uh, making a joke about why he didn't tell uh, congressional leaders and Democrats prior to uh, carrying out the drone strike of this Iranian terrorist leader. And I think there's multiple reasons why he did not tell them. But one of the most compelling reasons why President Trump did not brief lawmakers, especially Democrat lawmakers, on this strategy before is because they can't keep their mouth shut. They can't keep a secret, if you will, even national security secrets. And the Democrats hate President Trump so much that if he were to tip off some of the top Democrat leaders on this plan, they would leak it to the media. And the media would leak it, would run stories on it, and then guess what? The Iranians would be tipped off on this strategy, and the strategy would not work. And that's very unfortunate, if you think about it, that we can't even trust our leaders. And you saw the responses from Democrats and from the media. The Democrats and the media seemed more upset that President Trump killed this sick terrorist leader from Iran. They seemed more upset that President Trump took action and killed him than being upset as opposed to being upset about what Iran's been doing in the Middle East. Killing 603 American soldiers, wounding thousands more. It really shows you where the Democrats' priorities are, not in the right place. And so I don't blame President Trump. I wouldn't tell the Democrats one thing before you did it. Because they just can't keep their mouths shut and keep a secret. Why? Because they hate President Trump that much. Back to our overall strategy in the Middle East. As I mentioned, our primary objective, I believe, should be to protect Israel. Doing so would really lighten the burden, surprisingly, it would lighten the burden in the Middle East that the U.S. has. Because right now we have thousands of troops stationed throughout the entire Middle East in various countries, serving various different roles. But if you simplify Middle East strategy to a protect Israel and protect our allies strategy, then it clarifies what our purpose is in the Middle East. Now, meeting this objective, the objective of protecting Israel, protecting our allies, this, uh, that objective is really a balancing act because we, don't, we want to uh, display strength, strength through, uh, through peace through strength, but at the same time, 
we don't want to go to war. So we can't take the route of President Obama and previous administrations, which is the foreign policy of appeasement, which where you send billions of dollars to terrorist organizations in hopes to buy them off. That doesn't work, obviously. But at the same time, we don't need to be involved in endless wars in the Middle East. So it's a balancing act. And there's other countries that could partner with the U.S. in the Middle East to repel Iran and Turkey and other threats. Because if you look at the Middle East, you have Iran... Then you obviously have Iraq to the west. And then you have Syria. And then you have Saudi Arabia. These border Iraq. And then you have Jordan. And then you have Israel. And then Lebanon's there on the Mediterranean, just north of Israel. But there's various countries in the Middle East that are actually U.S. allies that could join in this effort to repel Iranian threats and protect Israel. But right now, those countries are not pitching in, if you will. Saudi Arabia is, to a certain extent, but not much. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the idea of ever establishing a democracy in Iraq, that idea is gone. It's not going to work. So the primary objective should be to protect Israel. And if we need limited troops in, in portions of Iraq and maybe portions of Syria, Syria to keep Iran back, I understand that. But this whole idea that we need thousands upon thousands of military troops on the ground in those countries, that argument is not compelling. And one expert, K.T. McFarland, uh, who's an often con a contributor on the Fox News channel, she does a very good job at explaining what our interests, what American interests are in the Middle East. Let's listen to clip four. This is KT McFarlane. I think that when he looked at the options that, that he had now maneuvered Iran to have, they were quite limited. First of all, the U.S. economy is strong, is growing jobs numbers. We're in great shape. Energy independence gives us an option we have never had in the Middle East before. We don't need their oil. We don't need to be in the middle of their fights. And then finally, um, I think that he understood that because the United States controls the world banking system, we, we could limit the options that Iran had. What could they do? Well, I guess they could militarily escalate and strike back. But they've already, they've already seen Soleimani, number two guy in the country, has just been smoked. So what are their, they know that Trump could go back and go after their military installations, their oil installations. Number two, well, they could do what they've always threatened to do, close the Strait of Hormuz, disrupt world oil supplies. Guess what? The United States is energy independent. Iran would hurt itself more than anybody by disrupting the flow of and oil. And pulls in your allies, too, if you make that move. And the third option? Absolutely. What? And well, the third option is let's make a deal. Come on to the table. Well, there you have it. That's KT McFarland on the different situations and possibilities that Iran uh, could take on the U.S. And then she gets into kind of our overall, what our overall strategy should be over there. And if you listen to her, she's basically saying through various ways that Iran really has no leverage or little leverage against the U.S. 
Because the U.S. is no longer, thanks to President Trump, the U.S. is no longer reliant on Middle East oil. Because we are, we are energy independent. We're actually exporting oil overseas. And so when all, you add all of, that, all of that up, Iran has no really strong leverage against the U.S. But when you flip that, the U.S. actually has leverage against Iran. Because the U.S. controls the world banking system. Thus, we're able to place crippling sanctions on countries like Iran. And which we've done, and that's why Iran is, is acting very hostile, because the U.S. Has, has placed crippling sanctions on Iran's economy, and they're frustrated, and they're trying to draw attention to themselves. And as I mentioned earlier, there's this balancing act that President Trump is actually doing very well. The balancing act of, a, of, of being strong on the world stage with our military and our presence, but yet not getting into unnecessary and pointless wars. President Trump, he knows how to balance that. And for those who think that President Trump is willy-nilly, you know, taking military action against Iran for no reason, or he's doing things hastily, if you go down a list of, of, of things that happened that led up to this attack, uh, up to this uh, uh, strike that killed Soleimani, the terrorist leader from Iran, there are at least three or four provocations from Iran that occurred prior to President Trump responding, meaning President Trump showed great restraint. First, we start off several months ago with the drone strike. Iran shot down an American drone over international waters. A U.S. drone flying over international waters, Iran shot it down in the Strait of Hormuz. Then you have the various oil tanker attacks. None of them, uh, I don't think any of them were U.S. Uh, owned vessels, but they were vessels of our allies. And Iran placed bombs on these oil tankers and blew several of them, uh, blew a hole in several of their, uh, in several of those vessels. So that's the second uh, provocation. The third one was when Iran bombed a Saudi oil field, which is an ally of the U.S., Saudi Arabia. That's the third. The fourth provocation was when Iran Iranian proxy forces in Iraq, headed up by Soleimani, bombed a Iraqi-slash-U.S. Uh, base in Iraq and killed a U.S. contractor. President Trump did a limited strike on various uh, locations in Iraq and Syria in response to a U.S. contractor being killed. Then what happens after that? Iranian militia forces storm and assault our embassy and burn down our embassy 
in Baghdad. Then after that, President Trump, after five provocations, President Trump took out Iranian's uh, Revolutionary Guard leader and terrorist uh, Soleimani. And so President Trump, as I just explained there, showed great restraint through various situations, and he finally took decisive action and legal action. One other clip I want to play is uh, this is flashing back to um, several years ago. This is when Joe Biden was a senator, and he's talking about the War Powers Act and how the president has the authority to strike back and prevent uh, American casualties. Clip one, let's listen. One fundamental weakness of the War Powers Resolution is that it fails to acknowledge powers that most scholars agree are inherent presidential powers, such as the power to repel an armed attack upon the United States or its armed forces, or to rescue Americans abroad. My legislation corrects this deficiency and thus avoids the endless dispute over where the exact location of the line between what the president already possesses independently and what the Congress is bestowing on him by legislation, where that line rests. My bill enumerates five instances where the president may use force. First, to repel without congressional authority at the outset. First, to repel attack on U.S. territory or U.S. forces. Second, to deal with urgent situations threatening supreme U.S. interest, i.e. the Cuban Missile Crisis. Three, to extricate imperiled U.S. citizens. Four, to forestall or retaliate against specific acts of terrorism. Five, to defend against substantial threats to international sea lanes or airspace. Well, there you have it. That's Joe Biden, Senator Biden in 1995, talking about the president's authority to carry out preventative measures to protect American lives. And that's exactly what President Trump did. Andy, Andrew McCarthy who's a writer, uh, an opinion writer for Fox News and for various other sites. But Andrew McCarthy wrote a great piece on the War Powers Resolution and how President Trump's actions fall within that War Powers Resolution or the War Powers Act that was passed in 1973. And I'll post that on our uh, website, AFR.net. If you go to our website, AFR.net, and you click on the podcast link, you'll see the show Exposing Washington. And if you click on Exposing Washington, every week where we post a recording of the show, where we post the podcast, we also post various links to news stories that I talk about if you would like to read more. You can go check that out at AFR.net, AFR.net. One story that got overlooked when it comes to Iran is that the U.S. is claiming that Iran shot the same night that they launched missile attacks at U.S. bases in Iraq, or U.S. slash Iraqi bases in Iraq, 
That same night that Iran did that, Iran also shot down, according to the U.S., Iran also shot down a passenger airplane over Tehran. which killed upwards of 150 or more uh, some Ukrainian and some Canadian citizens on that airplane. The U.S. officials are saying it was an accident. One of the missiles that was supposed to be aimed at uh, U.S. forces uh, actually intercepted this airplane and uh, took the passenger airplane down. But the, the, the news here, beyond what I just said, is that Iran, listen to this. This shows you who's guilty here when it comes to taking down this passenger plane. Iran bulldozed the plane crash site before outside investigators arrived. And so Iran shot down a passenger jet over their, over their nation's capital, Tehran, and they lied about it, and then they go and bulldoze the crash site before investigators get there, but from, from the technology that the U.S. military has to detect missile launches and things like that, the U.S. is able to say that they believe that Iran shot down, uh, accidentally shot down this passenger jet over Tehran, whether it was accidental or whether it was purposeful. Uh, I guess we, we don't know at this point. Another story, uh, well, really two more stories, uh, Nancy Pelosi is going to transmit the impeachment articles over to the Senate next week uh, or this upcoming week so that the Senate can uh, go ahead and get this thing started and end this uh, this uh, unnecessary and uncalled for impeachment against President Trump. So it looks like Nancy Pelosi caved to the pressure. You know, there's this clip floating out there. Maybe we'll bring it back another week. But there's this clip out there where you've got multiple uh, recordings of Democrats saying that the impeachment of President Trump is of urgent concern, that we need to do this immediately. There is no time to wait. I'm paraphrasing the Democrats. Well, they did all that, and they got, they got the impeachment through the House, and then they said, well, we're just going to wait on this. And so the question is, is it urgent or is it not? And I think we all know it's not urgent because there is no reason... There is no legal reason to remove President Trump from the Oval Office. Another story, and this is something where you're going to say, duh, Walker. But, you know, there's this, uh, there's been this fake narrative going around that somehow these wildfires across the U.S. are caused by climate change. No, not kidding you. Various uh, liberals and Democrats and left-wingers continue to say that climate change is causing wildfires in Australia and California and across the world. Well, a whole panel of experts came out and stated the obvious that California's wildfires were caused primarily by, listen to this, the way we manage lands and develop our landscape. So California's wildfires are mostly self-inflicted because they're not managing their forest properly. Imagine that. Exposing Washington American Family Radio, check out our website, AFR.net, and we'll be back next week.
The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.